Is there, it's been a couple weeks since I got to see you guys. I feel like it's been forever. <clears throat> I was pretty sick there for a while, but I'm glad to be back, and we'll see how far I can make it without devolving into coughing this time, hopefully better than it was a few weeks ago. Um, so our class is understanding the Bible, and what we're trying to do is kind of go through the different sections of the Bible, spend a couple weeks in each of the major sort of sections or areas, and look at, you know, how can we apply this today? How, if I study this on my own, how am I supposed to read it? How am I supposed to understand it? And how can I apply it to my life today? And so we spent a couple weeks looking at the Pentateuch, looking at the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we talked about, we, we did sort of a book-by-book book overview, just a few minutes, kind of discussing the major ideas of each book. And then we talked about some of the law texts and some of what we call the narrative texts. And just explain how I understand these differently. Because we know uh, Leviticus, Numbers, these are full of lots of codes of the law. And it's like, well, if we don't adhere to the law, what do I do with those? And so we spent a lot of time studying that. And this week, we're actually starting a new section. We're starting the historical books. And I didn't grab my clicker. Hold on. historical books, which I think uh, technically is Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and I think they include First and Second Chronicles in that. But we're going to deal with Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Uh, we'll talk about Ruth separately and kind of later, and when I get to Ruth, I'll explain why we're dealing with that separately. Uh, we'll talk about the Chronicles by themselves, and then we'll ta- uh, deal with uh, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah separately as well. But what I want to kind of handle in one go here, and we'll start by doing the book-by-book overview, just like we did with uh, the the Pentateuch. And so we'll spend a couple minutes talking about Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, and 2 Samuel each. Uh, If we get to 1 and 2 Kings today, we'll talk about those two, but I'm not really counting on it. Um, But we'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. So the historical books. Yes, worked on the first try. All right. It's going to be a good day. Um... So the historical books fill kind of a special place. Uh, they, t- they fill this gap between Moses, who we know, of course, did all the great things, led the people out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, crossed the wilderness. And it, and it starts with kind of the opening scene of them coming into the promised land, of crossing the Jordan. And these historical books run all the way through, through uh, Joshua. We have the period of the judges, of course, and then obviously Samuel. But Samuel anoints uh, Saul, but the main figure is, of course, David. And the, what they call the Davidic monarchy, or the United Kingdom, really dominates the historical books. That's what most of the books of Samuel, the books of the kings, are about. And uh, if, if you've ever heard that the Bible is a book that, that, that points to Jesus, talks about Jesus, and looks back at Jesus, if you've ever heard that before, that the whole Bible is centered around Jesus, I would argue that the bulk of the Old Testament is centered around Jesus-like figures. And so in the Pentateuch, you have Moses. Right? Moses is the one speaking on behalf of God. He's giving them the law. He's telling them what to do. He's, he's their intercessor. Right? He goes into the Holy of Holies. So in, in many ways, he feels part of that Jesus role, not the whole thing, but just part of it. And then in this period, we're going to see that Samuel does that a little bit, but really we're going to see David does that in a big, big way. And so this whole section, I would say, from, from Joshua all the way to 2 Kings really points kind of looking forward to David, talks about David, and then kind of looks back at David. And we'll see why that's so important. Uh, See, We'll see why that's so important, too. Why is David such a big deal? So that's really the the overarching theme of our our whole section here. Um, 
questions about just the historical books in general before we get started? I told you guys I don't have an exact timeline for how long I want this class to last, so I want you guys to feel like you can ask questions and uh, we can generate discussion if needed. Otherwise, I'll keep going. So, first book is Joshua. Um, <clears throat> the main event of Joshua is the crossing of the Jordan River. Um, it's what the book opens with. It's the, in many ways, it starts the fulfillment of the, uh, the God's people coming into the promised land. That's the main event of the book. It's the first book, kind of like how we talked about when we were studying Exodus. You know, what's the main event of Exodus? Well, it's, it's the Exodus. It's where they leave. <laughs> um, with Joshua, the biggest thing Joshua does is that first major thing he does is he crosses the Jordan River. Um, does anyone know why the Jordan River specifically is important? I might have already said this, but get a little bit of a warm-up icebreaker question. So the Jordan River, and this is why we sing about it all the time, it's in songs and you hear about it as uh, kind of those spiritual songs, is it marked the dividing line between the wilderness and the promised land. So when they crossed the Jordan River, they were entering into the land of rest, or so they thought. They were entering into the land of milk and honey. They were, they were finally, after literally generations of wandering, they, God's people were finally coming into this land they had been talked about forever and ever. And so that happens in Joshua 2. And so I have a lot of verses written down, and we'll see if this is right. Someone read for us Joshua 2, verse 9, because I'm still turning there. If someone could read for us Joshua 2, verse 9. And said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. So, 9, and then Van, why don't you go ahead and read verse 24 as well. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into your hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Thank you. So as we've talked about before, the first chapter of Joshua lays out the book. It kind of, we can already get an idea of what it's going to be about. Um, the book is called Joshua. Guess what happens in chapter 1? God calls Joshua. And the second thing he does is they cross that Jordan River. I had Ben read for us those two verses from chapter 2. That's kind of from the story of Rahab and the spies. Because it talks about that idea that God has given this land into your possession, but you need to go out and take it. Um, we talk a lot about how can I read and understand this in light of our life as Christians today. And I, I love these verses because he says, you know, you, your enemies are scared of you. They're, they're terrified of you. They're, they're quaking in fear because of the might and power of your God. But we know they're about to lose some battles. Like they're going to win some, but they're still going to lose some. And it's like, why is the enemies are terrified? Why does that happen? Well, when you study Joshua, we see that, well, when Joshua and the people obey God, good things happen. What do you think happens when they disobey God? Few people are with us. Bad things. Bad things happen. That was not a trick question, I promise. When they obey God, good things happen. When they don't obey God, bad things happen. And so uh, I read those verses from 2 9 and 2 24 because I think they're kind of similar to really the faith that we have today. Um, we don't. We do not have to pay the cost for our sin, right? Jesus did that. In the same way that God is telling Joshua, look, I've, I've already given this land into your hand. You just need to go out and take it. God has paid the price for our sin, but does that mean I can do whatever I want now? No. Okay. We'll wake up eventually. If I keep yelling, I bet you guys will wake up by the time, at least by the time worship starts. Well, they're like terror-stricken. <laughs> yeah. Are, are scared to death. 
Well, the, um, the enemies are, is what he's telling but yes, the people are too. Um, we, we see fear of God plays a big thing here um, in the Old Testament, and in both, but we'll get about that later. Um, let's, uh, we'll read a couple more verses that kind of tell us the purpose of the book of Joshua. I told you it was crossing the river. Um, I'll read, this is from chapter 3. Just kind of uh, continuing the same thing. Uh, from chapter 3, verse 9. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. And so we remember this, this Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever read the story of, of Moses or you've ever seen Indiana Jones, right? It's the golden box and it's got the angels and the Ten Commandments and it's powerful and scary. And it was really like a, almost a icon or a emblem. Um, the, the presence of God among them was that Ark of the Covenant. And so as long as the covenant was leading them, they knew God was with them. And so it says, he is driving out the enemies and the, the Ark of the Covenant is going before us into the Jordan. I want to read one more verse before we move on from Joshua. And I'll actually have someone read for us. Joshua 21, verse 43 through 45. Joshua chapter 21, verse 43 through 45. And it'll tell us just a little bit more on the purpose the book of Joshua fills in the big picture here. Thank you. He says, the land, the Lord gave them rest all around. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord has spoken. All came to pass. Do you remember the promise we talked about when we talked about the book of Genesis, that promise to Abraham? And how that promise to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a promised land. I'm going to, it's going to be flowing of milk and honey. And all of your generations are going to rest there. All the way back in Genesis, that promise was weighed. And now generations, books, hundreds of years later, this promise is finally being fulfilled. And so that is a big, big purpose the book of Joshua plays in the big picture here, is that promise God made to Abraham is finally being fulfilled uh, under the leadership of Joshua, but more importantly through God's people. And so, when we think about all those things we've been talking about, and we, we ask, what does Joshua, what does the book of Joshua mean? What can it teach us today? What, what are some things you guys think about? Or how do you think some of those themes that we've talked about can, can affect us today? Or how are they relevant today? You know, we're, we're kind of parallel to those people. How did they conquer what God had promised them? We are to conquer. We're supposed to take God's instruction to conquer the world. Absolutely. That's a... Uh... That's really one of the, I was going to one or two different places, and that's exactly it. I have up on the slides the theme of God's mission in the world. God gives them the mission in Genesis. He says, I'm going to send you across the river. I'm going to send you across the desert. And I'm going to give you a promised land and a place. And then when they obey him, that promise is fulfilled, and they're rewarded in that land of rest. 
It says, not an any good thing which the Lord, not a word failed of any good thing. All came to pass. Well, uh, does the church today have a mission? Yes, absolutely. And when we fulfill that mission, are we not rewarded when we cross into the promised land? I believe we will be, absolutely. And so you're absolutely right, Wilson. There's a lot of parallels uh, between this mission of God that is given to Joshua and the people of Israel and the mission that is given to us now. And, uh, yeah, we, we don't use the word conquer very often talking about what we do, but I think that's very appropriate. That is absolutely right. Um, so we take over the land. Um, another one, just as we kind of study characters and we look at examples, Joshua is another figure kind of like Moses in the sense that early in his career, Joshua's like, ah, I'm not ready for this. I can't do this. God, I, you know, uh, Joshua's, the book of Joshua is very famous for that passage, be strong and courageous. And it says that phrase like seven times in that first chapter. And someone pointed out to me one time, you know, if Joshua was already kind of a strong and courageous guy, I don't think God would have told him that seven times. <laughs> so Joshua's probably pretty meek, probably pretty quiet. We know he was alive during the time of Moses, but he only speaks up like twice in the entire second half of the book of Exodus. And so he says, you probably don't say that over and over to somebody who's already got it figured out. And so Joshua is this guy who evolves uh, from really this young man trying to figure out how he's going to fill Moses' shoes in the beginning of the book to by the time the book of Joshua is over, uh, the people have obeyed everything that, that God has spoken to them through Joshua. So... Um, Trying to keep with time, but also figure out how much I want to say here. Questions on Joshua. Uh, thankfully, Joshua doesn't have a lot of difficult texts. When we talk about studying and interpreting it, sometimes I'll want to highlight like difficult texts. Um, we'll get to some in the next book, but Joshua is pretty uh, straightforward, I think, in terms of understanding how it can apply to us. So let's talk about Judges, because Judges, we would probably have... Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And of course, this is where my mind runs with our study on Wednesday nights in the Minor Prophets. But, you know, God kept his promise to the people, but the people had their part to do. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you look to Joshua chapter 9, you see where they, they entered into a treaty with the Gibeonites. Well, they were supposed to, to wipe the land out. They allowed themselves to get tricked. They entered into this treaty. And, and, and by doing so, they, they, they didn't fulfill what God had commanded to them. And so they allowed the Gibeonites to survive um, and you know it going in kind of paralleling to our study of the minor prophets there's that common theme that man can't do it by himself man needs God and man is really not good at obeying God <laughs> yes. uh, and so the problems that you see just out of the out of the Gibeonites you, you know that comes back to haunt the children of Israel later on because those people were allowed to remain in the promised land and, and I forget the scripture citation where it pops up again but that comes back and so the, the lesson there is that when you fail to obey God which is sin sin has consequences and it can be long lasting absolutely that, that's a great example because one of the like I told you guys when we do this study one of the big things I want you to do is feel comfortable when you go home and you sit down and you say I want to read Joshua or I want to read Second Chronicles you can sit down and be like okay I get how I can apply this to my life today and that's a great example of taking Joshua 9 and reading about this uh, really just the middle of a military campaign and it's kind of like so what does this have to do with me being a Christian today well uh, as you mentioned God told them don't have anything to do with these people 
don't marry their people, don't marry their sons and daughters, don't uh, make treaties with them, don't get into agreements with them, don't be friends with them. They are not your friends. You are here to conquer them and take their land. Do not be friends with them. So what do they do? They go decide they want to be friends with them. What happens? Bad things. Well, maybe not in a militaristic way, but does Jesus not tell us that, hey, the world is going to hate you. You're not to be friends with the world, but he actually says that fellowship with me is enmity with the world. And I understand that we want to treat people with love, but we understand that our mission is sometimes going to create enemies. And so that's a great example of how we can read a passage and apply it pretty immediately today. Uh, were you going to say something, Whitney? Talking about the military. How do they win a battle? Every person in that military is involved to do a job. Absolutely. Now we sit back in the church and say, oh, we'll pay the preacher to do it. No, we don't pay a preacher to preach. We pay a preacher to support his family. We are, we pay a preacher to preach. He preaches because God said so. We have the same duty that the preacher does. I would agree. It's funny Nobody you say that. Nobody has any lack of duty. Everybody's got to play. I, I completely agree. If you preach God and never open your mouth, people are watching you every day outside. It's funny you say that because something we're going to talk about during our worship service is, is spiritual growth and kind of uh, all of us being on the same page in terms of a mission. So I would say that's absolutely correct. Um, I do at least want to get through Judges in First and Second Samuel. Like I said, I don't think we'll get to Second Kings. We'll probably just get through the four books in our overview here. So Judges. I mentioned that Joshua is pretty straightforward, doesn't have a lot of difficult texts. Have you ever sat down and read Joshua and Judges back to back? If you have, uh, I cannot say the same about the book of Judges. The book of Judges has a lot of difficult texts. There are a lot of passages where you go, what on earth is going on and how am I supposed to handle this? Um, I'll start uh, with just sort of how it fits into our picture. It, it fills this gap between Joshua and the period of the kings. Uh, this word judge, I want to talk about that for a minute because we think of a judge as somebody who sits in a courtroom, hears legal cases, makes judgments, passes judgment. And that, that word in the Hebrew that they call them does mean to judge, but it also means to rule. And while these, these heroes that are in the book of Judges, they sometimes settle legal matters of the law. But most of the time, they're military heroes. Most of the characters and judges like Deborah, like Gideon, like Samson, uh, these are military heroes who delivered Israel from foreign oppression. They delivered Israel from their enemies. And, and so this, this kind of is, this book serves two purposes. Um, on one hand, we see that these heroes really define uh, the, the sovereignty of God, God's ability to help, God's willingness and his grace to help his people, even in times of darkness, even when they're falling away. But what we also see is that these heroes only are lifted up because Israel has no real leadership. And while the heroes kind of are this light in the darkness, the point is also that Israel is mostly darkness, that there's no real leadership. And so they're constantly falling away. They're constantly in apostasy. Um, a, a big theme of the book – I don't think I – yeah, I'm behind. A big theme of the book is this idea of the judges' cycle where the people are at rest and then there's apostasy. And when the people fall away, they fall into slavery. And then when they're in slavery, they cry for help, as we would. And when they cry for help, God sends a judge to them, or he sends one of these military heroes. And it comes, and it rescues them, and it brings them back at peace. And then guess what happens? When they're at peace for very long, they fall back away, and they fall into slavery. And Van, you actually mentioned this in Joshua. I would say the purpose of the book of Judges is really what you just said, that it, 
it really demonstrates the inability for God's people to keep the covenant on their own. Um, if we could all sit down and we could take God's law and we could follow it and we could be model examples for God and we could just all be great Christians without any help or interference, without being blasphemous, we really would not need Jesus. But the truth is, everything I just said is really not true. We could not keep God's law on our own. We could not possibly hold up to the standard that God asked us to live to. We could not on our own really in this is true. I mean, this is true today. This was true then. And so, again, it's, it's just that example of when you obey God, good things happen. When you fall away, bad things happen. But in the big picture, we're seeing that when the, the Israelites are without a strong leader, they, they just are continually falling into apostasy. So it, 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 even in, their, in the big picture, it explains that kind of theologically. But it also in the, in the small kind of the timeline here, we're also going to see that there's some foreshadowing for the need for a king. And guess what happens in the book of Samuel, the book of the kings? They get a king. So th this is kind of, kind of foreshadowing that they, the people need a king. They need a leader. But they don't just need anybody. They need, as we'll see in Samuel, they need a man of God to be their king. Um, a couple of different defining passages from the book of Judges. I want to read, run, read one. And this is from Judges chapter 2. Um, we talked about the purpose, the main event, main event of the book of Judges. Uh, there's a lot of popular events. We probably know the story of Samson and you know, the hair and that. We probably know the stories of Deborah, the stories of uh, Gideon, the clay pots and the torches, and all the cool military stories. But again, the defining event of the book of Judges, I would say, is actually from Judges 2. And it's really this whole section from like verse 7 all the way down to probably verse 20 or 19. But I want to read just a couple verses. Uh, this is from Judges 2. In Judges 2, 7 through 9, tell us that Joshua died. Joshua died and was buried. In verse 10, when all that generation, and that generation means those who grew up with Joshua, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. They bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So we talk about how uh, after Moses we start seeing uh, a big theme in all these narrative stories is uh, duality or pairs. Uh, sometimes they're called character foils. Joshua and Judges are a great example of that. Under Joshua... Moses picked Joshua to be a good leader. Joshua was a good leader. The people followed Joshua. They obeyed Joshua. And guess what? They carried out the mission of God to full success. When the period of the judges, there's no leader. Joshua doesn't really pick a leader to follow him. Um, there's not strong leadership. And when there's not strong leadership, the mission doesn't really get accomplished. And when the mission doesn't get accomplished, the people fall into bad situations over and over. And I just I love this idea that it says, Another generation arose who did not know God. They were not taught. They were not led. They didn't know the things God had done for them. And so another big theme from the book, that, I think that's the event that really sets the tone. A big theme from the book of Judges would be Judges 17.6. And I'll go ahead and read that really just for the sake of time. But this is Judges 17.6, and it's repeated over and over in the second half of the book here. Judges 17.6, In those days there was no king in Israel, 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does God's people have a king? I want you to think about that. Yes. Yes. Who? Jesus. Absolutely. 100% agree. Could not agree more. Do people know that God's people have a king? Some people do. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously speaking to the choir in a sense. But do the people out there know that God's people have a king? I would say no. And so what do they do? Everyone does what they think is right in their own sight. And I, I don't think you will find very many verses in the entire Old Testament that speak more to our current situation in today's day and age. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, this verse gets repeated three or four more times before the end of the book. But it just shows us, it, and this is a, a great example of how in times of darkness, God will still send heroes. Good things still happen. And so we know the, I mean, I remember when I was younger, one of my greatest, one of my favorite stories was Samson. You know, Samson's a strong man. As long as he doesn't cut his hair, he, he's going to be a great hero. And he's going to do all these cool things that God does. But, of course, he gets entrapped by a woman. Happens to the best of us. She cuts his hair. He loses all his strength. And then when I sat down to read it, they don't tell you how the book of Samson really ends. Like when we, the VBS story is a little bit more like Braveheart, where he goes out like a hero and he kills all the enemies and he, he kills himself to kill the enemies and he's this great hero. But if you actually read the story of Samson, Samson's a, I don't say a horrible person, but he's not a good person. He's a horrible example. And in fact, when you really read the text, it, his death is sad and it's pitiful. Like he's chained up, his eyes have been gouged out, he's bleeding, and it says like that with his dying breath, he asks that like, if I can do a single good thing in my entire life, just let it be to kill these enemies. But like, Samson's actually a bad example when you really read the text. It's like, no, don't, don't fall to the temptations of the world. Don't get your hair cut by the pretty lady. Um, you know, don't fall victim to the, the temptations of the world, but stick to God's mission. And so uh, Judges also really introduces this theme that will stick with us the rest of the Old Testament. And I would say, after Moses... And until Jesus, there are no perfect heroes. And in a general sense, there's no perfect heroes anyway. But I think you get what I'm saying. There are really no good heroes in a true sense of the word. Um, you might say Samuel. Samuel doesn't do a whole lot. He's a prophet. He anoints Saul and David. But we don't see Samuel leading these campaigns for God's mission. I don't mean to diminish Samuel. I'm sorry, Samuel. Um, but, but Samuel is not really a military hero. Moses obeys the law. He obeys God. He gives the law. Moses makes a couple mistakes. And, of course, his mistake at the end of his life that costs him from seeing the promised land. But he's still, I would say, generally, a, you know, 95% of the things he does are right. And, of course, he's not perfect. But everybody else is very flawed figures from here on out. And I think that's very intentional. Because I want us to think about this. And we talk about uh, the Israelites telling their story. Right. Because we remember the Bible, all these books are written uh, by Israelites' people. They're written by God's people. They're written to God's people to tell their story. If you were telling a story about your life for your kids and your grandkids, I don't know about you, I would cut out a lot of this stuff. <laughs> like, I wouldn't, if I'm David, you're not putting the story of Bathsheba in there. Like, if I'm the king and I get to decide what gets written, you're not putting that in there. Like, what do we say in history class all the time, right? The winners write the history books. But it's so interesting that rather than, I don't want to say lie, but rather than hide their mistakes, Israel says, yeah, this is what happened. This is what happened. We, we didn't follow God and bad things happened. We had leaders 
who, well, we, we thought they would be good and we wanted them to be good and they were great and they did good things, but they also did bad things. And the bad things they did, we should learn from. And so I think in, in, in sort of a big picture sense, that's so important that they choose to share even the bad things. And like I said, you have these figures like Samson, who when we, we kind of put on a pedestal and we tell them, the, as Van said in the prophets, the, the coloring page version of the story. It's a cool story, don't get me wrong. There's some neat moments. But he's ultimately really makes a lot of mistakes. David, boy, is there a, I just told you the whole of this section points to David. David's the man after God's own heart. David does great things. But do you know why the kingdom unravels after David or why his empire falls apart? It's pretty much because of the sin that happens toward the end of his life, or the middle of his life. And so over and over from here on out, we'll see very flawed heroes until Jesus, which is a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, questions. Questions about the – well, okay. Um, before I even let you ask questions, so the book of Judges has some difficult passages. I don't have time to dive into all of them. Um, we'll, we'll handle this section kind of like we did the Pentateuch. We'll go through each book, and then either next week or two weeks from now, I'll go back and I'll say, hey, here are some examples of difficult texts and how we can understand them, if that makes sense. Right now, I kind of want to get the big picture. Um, but I'll at least say that in the book of Judges, um, something we see that carries in the prophets and it carries into the New Testament too, God's jealousy... And his desire for his people to be faithful to him is often illustrated through marriages, uh, through harlots, through really um, what we would kind of describe as illicit scenes. Um, and marriages and relationships are often used as a symbol or as an object lesson for God's faithfulness to his people. Um, and we see that uh, in Judges towards the end of the book. We see that in – oh, man, I'm trying to think of um, – we're studying the minor prophets. Who is the minor prophet who he tells to go marry a harlot? Hosea. Is it Hosea? Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. I think it's Hosea. Don't quote me on that. My mind just blanked. But there's a minor prophet that he tells, go and marry a harlot. And it's like, what? But he does that because he says it's an object lesson of how God forgives us even though we're not faithful to him. And so that, uh, that object lesson, that metaphor of marriage and faithfulness between men and women and God and his people is used over and over. And so I would say sometimes there are passages that uh, are hard to really read in that, in that way, but that is the purpose of them. When you read some of those and you're like, well, what is the point of this? Because this is really weird, maybe even kind of graphic. Well, most of the time it demonstrates God's faithfulness to his people or really God's jealousy for his people and his grace towards his people even when his people are unfaithful to him over and over. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, thank you. I thought so. I just couldn't draw a blank. So there's no king. Each person did what they thought to be right. Um, hopefully, we, we've talked enough about how that makes good modern application today. Questions about judges? All right, cool. We'll keep. Hey, oh, yes. I'm just going to put some questions that come. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. It's funny you say that because that's the, the second comment somebody's made that has a lot to do with what uh, our lesson during worship is going to be about. <laughs> um, which is probably because I've been studying this and just thinking about it and not really, you know, just in the back of my mind. But yeah, you're absolutely right. He, he tells them, hey, teach these to your children. And when they teach them to their children, good things happen. When they don't teach them to their children, bad things happen. Um, like I said, we're going to skip Ruth for now, and I'll explain why uh, when we get to that. But it's basically because 1 Samuel chronologically picks up at the end of Judges. And so I want us to be able to kind of keep going seamlessly with the narrative here. Um, 1 Samuel. Oh, so something I want you to know about the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. Uh, 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one book. 1 and 2 Kings were originally one book. Uh, whenever the Greeks translated the Bible from Hebrew into Greek, they said these are too longs and our books are too small. We're breaking this up. And so they broke it up into First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. I only tell you that to say that we can kind of think of First and Second Samuel as one story, and First and Second Kings as one story. Um, and I say that because that's an important distinction. Uh, if you compare that to the New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians were totally separate letters that just happened to go to the same church. First and Second Corinthians, totally separate letters that just happened to go to the same church. First and Second Samuel are literally the same story that just got cut in half because they didn't want the book to be that long. Um, I don't know if they just they ran out of space on the scroll or what was happening, but um, they're, they're tied right together. And even truthfully, First Kings picks up pretty much right where Second Samuel lifts off. So this is one, really, from Joshua to Second Kings is is sometimes this is called the Deuteronomistic history, which just means the history of God's people. And they say that because it's the section of the Bible that you can read with the exception of Ruth. You can start in Joshua, read all the way through 2 Kings, and that is just one big, long, five-part story. And you can't really do that with any other big section of the Bible. Does that make sense? You can read one of the Gospels, and then you can read Acts. But then the letters are kind of all over the place time-wise. But if you want, like, the history of God's people, at least seen through the eyes of its leaders and with the theological problems that it has, this is like a big, long section to sit down and study. Um... And it's, it's all one continuous big story. Does that make sense? Questions? Okay. So 1 Samuel. Who wants to guess who wrote 1 Samuel? Uh, Samuel? Yeah, there we go. We'll get there eventually. Samuel wrote it. He wrote it to the Israelites, but uh, interestingly enough, 1 Samuel, kind of about Samuel, really about David. It's kind of about Samuel and David. Um, just some other pairs to look at when you're reading First and Second Samuel, really First Samuel. We talked about um, the juxtaposition and the duality kind of uh, between good and bad examples. We see Samuel and Eli are kind of that first pair that's introduced. Then we see Samuel and Saul, and then we see Saul and David. Saul and David dominate the second half of First Samuel. Saul's obviously usually the bad example. David's usually the good example. The main event in First Samuel is that the people demand a king. The people demand a king. Uh, we, we talked about how after Joshua, the leadership structure collapsed. During the judges, there was no king. People did whatever they want. Well, then during 1 Samuel, the people have had enough of this and say, you know what, we need a king. Does anyone remember, or do they happen to know, how it, why it was the people thought they needed a king? That's exactly right. Turn to 1 Samuel 8.
1 Samuel 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. I want you to understand this because I, I believe if the people did not act in this way, I think God would still give them a king. I think they would still have a king. I think God's plan was for David to be the king. I don't mean to be presumptuous on God's behalf. I think God had a plan for them to have a king in their own time. We just talked about how the lesson of Judges was that God's people need a king. And what do the people do? They say, God, we've been horrible and repentant and apostate. We need a king so that we can serve you better. No. They say, hey, everyone else has a king. Why don't we have a king? And if you're reading this section chronologically, you should kind of just shake your head when you get here. Because it's like, that's not why you need a king. You need a king because you're all disobedient heathens who can't obey God on your own. But they say, you know, we want to be like everybody else. Give us a king. And so what do they do? They look at the kings that the other nations have and they say, we want a king like that. We want a king who looks like the king other leaders have. We want a king who, a leader who looks like the, the leader other people have. And so what do they do? They anoint Saul. And without just tell, retelling the entire story of Saul and David, Saul is your prototypical king. I imagine he was tall, big, broad shoulders, probably a long, very strong Israelite beard. He looked like a king. They said, this is a guy who can be a king. He can swing a sword. He can fight. Who cares what his heart's like? He's a guy who can be a king. And a big, big theme of 1 and 2 Samuel is what makes a good leader good. We knew when we were looking at Joshua and Judges that people needed a king. But we knew, if we were studying Judges, that they needed a king because they couldn't obey God. They think they need a king so they can be like everybody else. So what makes a good king good? If you remember when we were studying Deuteronomy, one of the passages I read was that passage that talked about what an Israelite king should be. And I said, this is a big, big deal, even though you don't know it yet. And if I wanted to scroll, I don't really have time to scroll through my notes and find it. We'll probably open with that passage next week. Um, but it talks about, you know, a king should be faithful to his wife. He shouldn't accumulate much gold for himself. He shouldn't accumulate much wealth. He should not accumulate for himself many women or many men and have lots of servants. A king should be a man after God, and a king should be wise, and a king should be devoted to God first. But what does Saul do? None of those things. David, David, great guy. What does David do? None of those things. What does Solomon do? You know what Solomon's known for, for two things among anything else? We know him for his wisdom. You know what the history books know Solomon for? His women and his money. I mean, we really like the story where he didn't cut the baby in half, and that's awful nice. But he also hoarded up a boatload of wealth and women. You go all the way to Deuteronomy. If we judge Solomon, we say, oh, he's a good guy. He was very rich and had lots of women, very successful. But Deuteronomy says, do not do that. David and Solomon were actually bad kings. And we'll pick up from there next week. Thank you, guys.